1: Hello and welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkron. Today I have the dual pleasure of speaking with both editors of a brand new Rutledge South Asian Religion series publication, Muslim Communities and Cultures of the Himalayas. My guests today are Dr. Jacqueline Fuchs and Dr. Megan Adamson-Sijapati. And they will be talking about this fascinating brand new British publication. Welcome both to the podcast.
0: Thank you so much for having us.
1: So you'll have to tell us, uh, firstly, how this venture started. How did this publication arise?
0: Well, um, we first started working on this project, actually, in preparation for the annual conference of the Association for Nepal and Himalayan Studies, uh, which was at Yale in 2014. Megan and I were uh, on a panel together where we were talking about Muslim communities of the Himalayas. And uh, it was a really interesting panel. We enjoyed getting together with a number of scholars, some of whom ended up contributing to this volume eventually, uh, and talking about some of the issues associated with varied communities. Um, as we mentioned in the preface of the book, though, you know this was a really stimulating conference presentation, um, but it was uh, somewhat... I think sparsely attended, we could say, um, and we we felt as if at the the sort of projects and the interest that we had in talking about Muslim communities in this region um, wasn't really at the forefront of the conference. It wasn't at the forefront of people's consciousness from a regional studies perspective. And so it became a priority for us to think about how we could draw together different sources and start a conversation that would really uh, talk about the Muslim experience within this Himalayan region, not just to contribute to Himalayan studies, but also to Islamic studies to understand diversity of communities. Thank
2: Yeah, and if I could just add real quick to that, too, and also kind of to to South Asian studies uh, writ large. I mean, uh, we talk a bit about, and we'll probably say more about this, but the uh, delineation of different regions and how regions are conceptualized. That's a lot of what this book uh, is about in a way. And so these kind of overlapping categories, Himalayas, Islamic world and South Asia. So
1: So that's a Great segue. You've already begun answering the next question, which is, what is this book about? And maybe somewhere in there you can comment on this, this sort of naive interlocutor question of, hey, Muslim communities in the Himalayas? What's up with that? I haven't heard of that. Like, am I missing a whole ton of scholarship or is this like a, 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 a neglected field of research? Is this new? You can maybe intersperse that naive uh, question into your answer.
2: Well, it's not naive at all. It's it's really the question that this uh, that we try to take on. Well, that we're addressing, I think, in this book is, um, you know, um, I mean, there is a real dearth of scholarship on Muslim cultures and communities and Islamic traditions in this part of the world, um, and you know, we are very excited about studying and learning more about and documenting voices of Muslims um, in this part of the world um, from very, we can maybe each talk a little bit about this, but I come at it from um, a focus and the history of some scholarship on Nepal, Jacqueline on Ladakh. Um, but uh, you know, I think we both, one reason we've, I've certainly enjoyed all the conversations I've had with Jacqueline and just enjoyed this project so much is that is because um, there really isn't a field or a group of, I mean, we're trying to kind of create a conversation around something that you're right, isn't immediately apparent, either to scholars studying the region, or even within Islamic studies or South Asian religions. And we wanted to um, try to start something in a way, Um, but in a way that was uh, open and kind of, um, we can say more about this as we go on, but rather than like we talk about in our introduction, rather than trying to write a kind of perfectly crafted narrative about the history of Islam, quote unquote, arriving in South Asia, which is problematic in its own way. Um, Cause it kind of positions Muslims as inherent outsiders or perpetual outsiders. So rather than doing that, we wanted to, um, kind of foster a conversation based on a variety of kind of lived experiences in the Himalayas among Muslim people, Muslims with People of other religious backgrounds, Muslims within their own communities, experiences of political oppression, experiences of devotion and piety, you know, a whole range of things um, as a way to kind of start to build what might be an area of study. I mean, we're not claiming to actually, I think, try to start anything, but our our intention is to... help lay the groundwork for, you know, other scholars jumping into a conversation so we can create a little bit more of a critical mass of, of uh, scholarship and inquiry around this um, this area that we think is really fascinating, but you're right, is not um, very apparent within, um, you know, Asian studies or South Asian studies or Islamic studies.
1: Well, it's, um, it seems apparent that the best books are beginnings more than conclusions, right? They They, they, they unfurl an avenue of, of research, and so this certainly does that at least for me. Um, you touched on the intro and some of the broad themes, but we want to to indicate like what are the the main themes of um, this volume, uh, generally, and maybe in tandem we could talk about who might be interested in it.
0: Sure. Um- I'll just start off by following up on the last question as we go into this question, too, because I think they're they're obviously related. This is a major theme of ours to expand upon this notion of what's possible to study in the Himalayas. And as we as we mentioned in the introduction as well, um, to think about claims of communities belonging to a particular region. And and we know that these are complex narratives in in South Asia and around the world um, that are rooted in all sorts of historical trajectories and geo cultural politics and so on. So, you know, we in one sense in this book are contributing to those discussions, right? We're trying to contribute to these larger discussions about peoples and communities and who belongs. Um, But our main focus is not simply to refute any sort of particular body of knowledge, but um, as Megan was saying, to contribute voices and perspectives. Uh, and that was very important to us as we were thinking about this, that if we're, if we're creating this book about Muslim communities of the Himalayas, that we're not trying to perpetuate any idea that there's, there's one particular way of being Muslim in the Himalayas or one particular community. So we're trying to really document a very wide range of, of local, national, and even global interests while maintaining this focus on the individual perspectives and particular moments in time and localized experiences that were so of interest to us. Um, so we have this broad range of chapters that I think really captures um, that attempt, the attempt to, which, you know, we call the, the, our introductory chapter is, is titled Diversity, Continuity, and Disjuncture. And I, I really love that beginning because, you know, there, it says so much about what we were thinking, that there's, there's shared experiences and there's differences in diversity that we want to recognize here. And, and the relationship between those are very important. Um, And I think we could also, I'm sure Megan wants to jump in, but I'll just say, I think we could also talk about this in terms of the different types of studies and our different backgrounds and what we're contributing to here, right? So in one sense, this is supposed to contribute to Islamic studies. And there are aspects of Muslim experience and practices here that I think will be recognizable to Muslims as well as those studying Muslim communities around the world. So, you know, we talk about prayer and scholarship and shared vocabularies, um, but we are also working against stereotypes about, you know, an Arab-centric Muslim world, we're trying to show the diversity of the Ummah, the global Muslim community through different experiences of local communities, Megan's in mine chapters, um, Megan's on uh, the um, Hajj experiences of Nepali Muslims, mine on um, women uh, scholars, female Islamic scholars in Ladakh, I think very much contribute to that perspective. Um, at the same time, the Himalayan studies side of things, there's also hi- aspects of Himalayan life and South Asian life that would be recognizable to anyone from the region or studying the region, right? So there's discussions of trading histories and interactions in and da- daily interactions in shops um, in the IBs chapter. And, and so we've, we've, we present this diversity of perspectives that hopefully creates this more inclusive understanding of the Himalayas and of the region as a whole, um, and it expands our idea of the Himalayas literally. Um, so in Marie Paul Hill's chapter, for example, we're sort of pushed to think outside of just mountains when thinking about the Himalayas, um, and also historically, metaphorically, in, in Jonah Steinberg's chapter and Abdul Nasser Khan's chapter to some degree. So we're, we're thinking about the Himalayas as, as as larger than just a fixed geographic zone, and that's a really important theme for me as well.
2: Yeah, and I, I just, to, to build on that for a moment, um, you know, we, there's, there's kind of this dilemma that you can find yourself in when you're focused on the multiplicity and the diversity within <laughs> the thing that you're writing about or studying, because then what is the thread of continuity, right? You have to find the and And so while a big emphasis of ours is that there, as Jacqueline said, there's no, you know, we want to make the, the book we hope makes clear. There's no one way to be Muslim or there is no one authentically Himalayan Muslim identity or culture or anything. Um, And so, but yet focusing on all the diversity, you know, some of the, some of the ways that we, I mean, we had to think about, well, then what makes, what makes this a Himalayan Ummah, Ummah being, you know, the global Muslim community, and it can be um, kind of conceived at more regional levels as well, which is how we use it in the title of the book. But, you know, so then what we had, we thought a lot about, so then what is the kind of thread of continuity within this whole um, large, diverse field that we're looking at? and. You know, one way that the um, that this part of the world is is understood is through borderland studies and that perspective. Um, and uh, that's not really how we decided we wanted to approach it, um, because, um, you know, we're we have, for example, as um, Jacqueline mentioned, Jonah Steinberg's chapter, which is kind of on the far outreaches of the northwest frontier province. We have chapters, you know, dealing with more um I mean, with just a whole variety of even regional areas that kind of throw into question the borderlands uh, uh, frame. So, but we also couldn't choose a certain ethnicity or a certain linguistic approach or even a p- particular type of religiosity because they are Shia Muslims and there's Sufi, Sufi practices and and uh, and uh, tariqas and there's uh, all different kinds of mudhugs or schools of thought and schools of law being practiced, even with even though it's predominantly a Hanafi area and say. Uh, North India and Nepal but so we really kind of um, approach it as kind of religion religion conceived most broadly right so the expression and the um, connection that um, being Muslim creates and so we play with that a little bit too and I think each of our chapters um, really present some pretty fascinating perspectives on that on kind of Muslimness and what that what that involves
1: what comes to mind is um, something I uh... Whenever I teach uh, Hinduism intro Hinduism, uh, I teach primarily continuing studies um, at the OCHS, and of course there's a variety of backgrounds and there's all kinds of interest in understanding this thing called Hinduism, whatever that is. And my two favorite metaphors are a jungle or a tapestry. And you say something at, I believe the outset of your concluding chapter that really reminds me of something that I often say that once you start pulling a a, a thread or identifying or isolating a thread of the tapestry, the tapestry starts unraveling. And, and there's something about South Asia. that It's such syncretic soil. And so, you know, at some point we could have said, look, you know, these, um, these, these ascetic voices are an intrusion into the Puranic fold. Or uh, later, these Puranic voices are an intrusion or a re-adaptation. And now these waves of religiosity, um, uh, albeit they Islamic, Nevertheless, they're folded into this texture of of, of this ecosystem of, of the syncretic soil. Now, what? Um, how are all your papers uh, ethnographic? You know, what are some of the methods you're using?
0: Um, you know, certainly a number of them are ethnographic. Um, and involve our our on the ground research and fieldwork in these different areas, um, but they combine you know a number of different types of sources as well. I think uh, what immediately springs to mind when I think about different types of sources for this book is in chapter two, um, kabiri Deberg Robinson's chapter um, Topiwala Jin and the Past Times of Violence in Kashmir, where we have this story, and it's it's. There's an ethnographic sense to it because Robinson is is talking about people telling the story and interacting with the story and and the sort of experience of receiving the story from people and so on. But the 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 folklore is really central to that chapter as well, and so it's it's as much ethnographic as it is a sort of um, literary exploration of how people tell tales and and what aspects of stories about the past can help us to understand about how people are, are working with history and memories and so on. And so it provides a really, I think, nice um, perspective that, that layers the the sort of ways of knowing this community and, and makes it more complex than a lot of discussions that you might hear about people talking about Kashmir and and the difficult issues associated with Kashmir's history.
2: Yeah. And also uh, one thing I, I love about what she does in her chapter or the very base of the chapter is that as Jacqueline just said, I mean, even on top of that, it's about, it's about a jinn, you know, a, an other than human uh, being, <laughs> non-human person type of being who, um, you know, so it's, it's inherently about um, religion in a way. And yet it's this kind of counter narrative to what we might get about what is a formally Islam, right? I mean, jinn are these kind of magical, uh, well, there's a lot to say about Jen. You know, read the, we can read the chapter and, and see uh, the cool story about this topiwala Jen and this young boy who boy Jen who wears a topi and helps a family and um, comes to represent things uh, she suggests about the very uh, experience of dislocation and violence of a Kashmiris. But, you know, that it's um, this isn't, again, like this kind of um, normative – normative Islamic discourse, right, that's being documented here as well. This is something I like your idea of this kind of ecosystem of um, religious religiosity that's uh, very fluid. And so I think the jinn element of this is pretty unique too, and that we're not just talking about straight up texts and normative discourses.
1: As you, sorry, go ahead.
0: Oh, no. I also think it's it's just a really interesting way to explore the past, and it works well with some of our other chapters. We do have two other chapters in the book, which touch upon Kashmir as well. And I think they're quite complementary to each other, because Idris Kant has this chapter on the social and political life of a relic um, that gives us more of a historical perspective um, and documents histories in the past in another way. And then our final chapter by Anissa Mutia, um, Messy Narratives of Belonging, is about uh, Tibetan refugee communities, but also touches upon experiences within Kashmir. And Bhutia brings together sort of the histories and the personal dialogue and narratives. And so these three chapters together then present this really different and I think um rich understanding of a variety of experiences in that particular region. So, uh, this is what you know. I think is is really wonderful about this book, and what we were so happy about as we were working on that is we we brought together scholars working on really different topics. But as they started coming together and as we started working and we worked on this for, for a number of years, I mean, this book is very much a labor of love, we kept saying, right, because we really cared about it and we wanted to make it good. We wanted to make it something meaningful. And so um, there, you know, we had this enthusiastic support by the authors who reworked their pieces and really brought them together in ways that I think they speak to each other um, in, in powerful ways. And these three chapters for me do that.
2: Yeah. And they're all, and if we take a look, just these three, I mean, they're all, um, all of these authors have spent a lot of time on the ground, either living, <laughs> they either live kind of permanently in these places or have lived there for many years. And um, so to that, to that degree, yeah, they're deeply ethnographic. Um, and I, I like that we have these, those kinds of perspectives.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now you each also make contributions to the volume. Do you want to see a little bit about your own research?
0: Sure um uh my chapter uh is titled when a woman is educated in islam conversations with alima of ladakh and it's about uh female scholars of islam in ladakh and specifically i'm trying to focus on interviews and i and present them you know this was for me an attempt to present the voices that i interact with in the field and having worked in ladakh um for Uh, quite a long time now and and really try to bring forward the voices uh, that I encounter in my interviews and so on without as much of a filter and a sort of interpretive process as one might normally be expected to present in an article. So, you know, uh, you know Megan and I had a lot of conversations about this where, where where I kept saying to her I really don't want to provide more explanation you know how how much can we make this meaningful and yet not about what I think this is about and so that to me was really um freeing for this chapter to be able to work with that desire that I had to present what I think is a really meaningful um set of 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 uh, explanations and ideas that these women present without too much of my own interpretations about it, while still making it readable and meaningful to viewers, I mean, to readers who who may not be familiar with the topic or the region. So it was a balancing act, but it was really fun for me to try to put that together.
2: Yeah, and I give a lot of credit to, to Jacqueline for really keeping us on point with this This idea, one, just having the idea in the first place and then really keeping us to it with our chapters of letting these interviews speak for themselves. You know, it's so tempting to put all of our, you know, (laughs) scholarly analysis on them. And then that could have been what we were trying to say in part of our intro chapter, which is that we're not we don't want to be dictating what these experiences and voices and lives are about I mean, as much as, of course, we have to engage in analysis, and that's a big part of the book, we want the voices to speak, be able to come forward and speak to the reader um, in their own ways. And so um, so, that, so that's what I tried to do in my chapter as well. Mine is titled Everyday Religiosity and Extraordinary Experiences, Nepali Muslim Narratives of Hajj. And um, yeah, it's interviews that uh, I did with uh, Nepalese who are going on the Hajj at the height of the Maoist insurgency um, and civil war in Nepal in 2005, 2006. And um, I it, it's funny, I in a way, I was kind of writing against some of my, much of my other work on Muslims in Nepal, or not against, but I suppose in kind of to supplement uh, that work in that I have written a good amount about kind of the religio-political experiences of Muslims in Nepal and talked and tried to Uh, think through and document some of their experiences of becoming a community with a voice in a place that's a Hindu majority where they have only until very recently, um, you know, they've not really had access to the public sphere until very recently. Um, But in this chapter, I tried to do something really different, which was just read these, present these voices and read them to the degree that I do provide some analysis as not political positioning or not, you know, anything um, particular to the political context, but rather um, as kind of a form of ibadah or you know obligatory worship and ritual performance in Islam, and to see what would come out of the interviews when we look at them more like that. And so um, I um, had a lot of fun just kind of you know translating these interviews and um, seeing what uh, Nepali Muslims had to say about their experiences. Um, and of course, they're coming from. Um, I mean, this is part of one theme of the book, this kind of the idea of the far reaches of the Islamic world being in South Asia and then really in the Himalayas, very far reaches from, in a sense, but in another way, what is, what would that even, what's that even mean to say they're at the farthest reaches? I mean, they're Muslim, they show up eventually in Mecca and do the Hajj and they're as much a part of it as any, as a Muslim coming from anywhere else, but they do encounter um, problems with language and problems with, um, you know, other types of communication and, Um, challenges in terms of how prepared they are or are not for the rituals that have to be performed in Arabic and so forth. So um, my chapter explores some of that. Um, Yeah.
1: So we had a recent um, interview on um, Sikhism far outside of Punjab within South Asia and the experience of those um, non-Punjabi Sikhs. So I, I can't help but draw a bit of a parallel. And I wonder uh, or maybe the listeners would wonder: um, Is there uh, uh, are there studies that indicate how these Muslims feel in term of in terms of comparison or measuring up to uh, to Muslims who are not so peripheral to this kind of Islamic world? If you were to draw up a map type thing.
2: Well, I think if, if I can start on that, Jacqueline, get us started. I think, you know, I think it's, Islam is a very, it's a very interesting question because what is really the center of the Islamic world? I mean, yes, the origins are in Mecca Medina, and Medina and of course the Arabian Peninsula, but from the earliest, you know, century of Islam, you had Muslims already far from those regions um, and very early on to, you know, um, new languages, new cultural practices and so forth were becoming Islamic in the sense that everyone was originally a convert to Islam, right? So where's the center? Um, you know, in terms of geopolitics, yes, uh, Saudi Arabia and, and, uh, some others might like to claim to be the center of the Muslim world, but what does that really mean if you have one third of the world's Muslims who live in South Asia, for example, um, I always question, you know, what is really the center of the Muslim world? It's one thing to have the sacred centers and spaces such as the Kaaba and the city of the prophet, uh, of course, in located in the Arabian Peninsula. And there's no doubt that that provides a very uh, tangible and powerful center for sure. And, you know, Muslims always pray towards Mecca. So that center is is kind of reinscribed in ritual practice and other things as well. But um we question in the book what is what would it even mean to say that you're further from Islam than closer to it if, um, if it can be embedded in your own personal and community experience, uh, at, at the local level.
1: What do I the think, practitioners feel about that? How do they feel about that?
0: I, I mean, I, I think, um, you know, we 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 draw attention to some of the ways in which vocabularies suggest that people sort of weave together their multiple identities to to balance between them, right? The sort of religious identities, ethnic identities, national identities, regional identities. I, I think there's not a, a simple answer to this because one of the things that we really tried to emphasize here all of our, the people that we're working with and that are featured in this book are not simply one thing, right? They're not simply Muslims or simply of this region or ethnic identity or national. So so they're they're balancing a lot of these different identities and that multiplicity of identities um, are really being interrogated simultaneously many times in, in these. So I'm thinking, for example, again, of um, Anisa Butia's work um, with Tibetan refugee Muslims who are in India, right? And they're they're sort of talking about in her chapter the they, I mean, her chapter the first part is messy narratives of belonging, right? And it, it really um symbolizes this this sort of uh, complexity that we're dealing with where to to talk about, you know, what does it mean to be Muslim and, and have a Muslim-centered is, is further confused by what does it mean to be, in, in in Bhutia's case, Tibetan? And what does it mean to be a refugee? And what does it mean to be living in India? And so on. Um, it happens in Abdul Nasir Khan's chapter two, where he's working on this biography of Munchi Abdul Sattar, who's an Indian freedom fighter and Muslim and Livaki. And there's this sort of different aspects of sitar that make him present or not present in regional histories. Right. And so um, for me, you know, when I'm thinking about these chapters and and, the, and your question, it's an interesting one, but it's not just confined to Muslimness. It's, it's sort of associated with all of these aspects of their identities and, and um, trying to, you know, go back to that that thread that you talked about before, right? Once we start pulling on the thread, it all entangles. So, so it's it's hard to pull on the thread of Muslimness and, and isolate that alone as as you know whether they're central or not in my mind.
2: Yeah, and I would add too. I mean, when we think when we look at any global traditions, any global religious traditions, we can, you know we can ask this question, um, and it's it's such a fascinating one. I mean, I think about you know Muslims in America, for example. How is how is that really any different? And yet, I don't think there's a big concern because you said, like, how would practitioners feel about this? I don't know that there are a lot of Muslim Americans who are concerned, so to speak, about not being, about, about being in North America and not being in the heart of the Middle East or somewhere. I mean, so it, it, I think it depends on kind of the the political narratives and the places that we're talking about, too. And certainly South Asia, um, uh, India, for example, of course, has there's a very, a very complicated and troubled, intense relationship. And in um, interreligious uh, dynamics and politics, even preceding the colonial period, and so that kind of anim- further animates that question, or kind of enhances the seeming importance of that question, whereas we might not find that, um, you know, in, in parts of um, in other parts of the world among Muslim communities.
1: Hmm. Well, thank you very much for indulging the question. Uh, typically, it's about the scenic route. I ask more generative questions than, than conclusive questions. Um, uh, you know, having, having uh, co edited this rich array of papers, you know, um, what struck you? Like, what really, what, what, you probably touched on many of the themes in our conversation thus far, but what really stands out to you about this collection? Or, or what did you learn? Or what did you find most surprising? Or, you know, can you comment on that?
0: Hmm. That's That's it. That one takes a little bit of thought. You know, in, in some ways, the first things that sprang to my mind when you asked that question were contradictory because on one hand, I thought to myself, um, I could say that it surprised me that there were, you know, so few, People that could have contributed to this book when we were looking around for it. And then, at the other hand, right after that, I thought, and yet it also surprised me that there were so many people that could have contributed to this book in so many directions to go on. And I know that sounds completely contradictory, but it, it was a sort of, you know, everyone we talked to had this sort of, you know, oh, I have work that would be interesting, but I'm not sure that's, you know, really about that topic or that's really what you're looking for, you know? And and so we kept having these conversations with people about, well, what does it actually mean to study Muslim communities in the Himalayas? And where are you talking about with the Himalayas? And which time period are you going to actually do? And, you know, oh, my work is more historical. You're probably not interested in it. My work's more over here in East China. You're not interested. You know, and so we kept having these really interesting conversations that led to, you know, chapters, I think like um, Marie Paul's chapter, in Paul Hill's chapter, chapter 10, Himalayan Ummah is a meeting place between various Islamic cultures. The case of the Chinese Muslim community trading interaction is in Umdo. And she's talking about Umdo, which I think many people would consider to be outside of the Himalayas. So, you know, initially she, when we talked with Hill, she was sort of uh, you know, well, does this count? Is this really what you want? And we we thought about what this means to talk about this as a Muslim community and as a as a um, Himalayan community and and we asked the author really to make an argument to us in this paper about why this would belong and, and it ended up really working well. But but there were constantly these discussions about what's included and what shouldn't be included and where which way should we go because there's so many possibilities and yet there's not that much out there. And so it was this really interesting balancing act um, in my mind and surprising to me.
1: Well, listen, if you're doing religion in South Asia well, then it's always both and, right? (laughs) It's it's never either or.
2: Yeah. (laughs) I I agree with everything that you just said, Jacqueline, and and you put it so well. And I also, maybe this is the case with any good collaborative project or any, you know, really uh, rich uh, interdisciplinary and collaborative uh, book project. But I also, I guess when I pull back and think about it, I have um, such... Um, kind of just respect and appreciation for how much scholars have to put in to understanding a local space and really understanding it to the degree that you can, that they can write about it with, you know, with some authority, but not even really authority as much as just depth and kind of integrity and all of that. You you know, you can't just, these aren't just all, all, you could say this about all of South Asia, maybe all the world, you can't just... Decide you want to look at it for a year and then be done. And I mean, so the people that we worked with, I was just very, all of of our authors, I was just um, so thrilled to be able to see them, see their work, work with them, see their work evolve as, as it, as, you know, they revised it and it became part of the project. And also just a kind of in awe, you know, of, well, what we do when we study <laughs> cultures and religions and, um, how much, how much goes into being able to write even just, you know, a 20 page chapter, the kind of levels of expertise in terms of language and, um, methodology and all this stuff. It's, it's, so it's a real pleasure. I, I, that struck me at the end of how, um, there are just a lot of good people working really hard to, to contribute to uh, uh, all of our understandings of, you know, uh, these, this place.
0: Yeah. And Mm -hmm. I, I'll just follow up on that because I think that's a great point. Each of these chapters are sort of this plunge into an in-depth look at something that most, all of these people have been working on for a long time and care deeply about and have a great deal of knowledge about. And so we get these, um, this opportunity to really focus in, 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 in very specific um, and meaningful interactions, which, which I really enjoy.
2: Yeah. And one more thing if, um, that I'm realizing too, because this is such an interesting question you've asked us. So I just keep thinking more and more. Is, you know, several Forgive of our me. Authors, <laughs> what's that? Forgive me. <laughs> yeah. Several of our authors like, um, you know, Kabir Deberg Robinson and Jonah Steinberg. I mean, those two, for example. I mean, they both wrote pieces where when we had our initial conversations with them, you know, they said, Well, I have this thing that I wanted to write about, if I can kind of paraphrase what they were saying. That was that, you know, that they had it was kind of like it would have been a side chapter somewhere. It was something that they really were compelled by and were interested in. They had they had materials for, but they didn't there wasn't a place for it necessarily yet, or they hadn't been asked to to write about it, or and so I think our volume, I would hope, gave a place um, for that kind of work where it doesn't necessarily fit in perfectly into, um, into other venues. And then of course we have some kind of, um, emerging scholars in the, in the book as well, um, who, um, you know, this is a great opportunity for them to get to do that deep dive and, um, be part of this
1: conversation in the book. So. are there specific, um, scholars or contributions that we wish to make mention of before we close?
0: I think we've, you know, mentioned all of them in in some way. I, I believe so as well. I was, you know, very grateful to everyone who contributed to the volume. One of the things that was very important to us is that we had some sort of regional balance, whatever that might mean. And, um in spite of, you know, the difficulties of, of just trying to arrange people's schedules and finding people who felt confident putting something in at this t- point in time and so on, I think we did a really good job in that. And and although, you know, you can never have perfect regional representation, you never have, you know, everybody has the exact equal amount of mention, I feel like we, we were able to achieve a certain um, understanding of a broad range of areas through all of these works, which, which was very valuable to me. And so I, I very much appreciated that. And and they were places that I wasn't familiar with. So, you know, we mentioned earlier on that we, we have, uh, Megan mentioned that we have these different regional specialties and backgrounds. And I, I really was not very familiar with um, Nepali communities, uh, Muslim communities, um, before working on this book and before hearing me and talk about her work and so on, and so that's been really fascinating to me. And and so um, Ayub's chapter, for example, in chapter eight, gave me this opportunity: the Hindu shopkeeper's Quranic verses um, intersecting practices between Muslims and Hindus of Nepal gave me this chance to just imagine this this small shop and this interaction between. Uh, Ayob and the shopkeeper and the conversations that came out of that and and really uh, the richness of that ethnographic moment helped me sort of get a glimpse of a whole world that I really wasn't that familiar with and so that was really valuable for me and and then at the same time you know Abdul Nishir Khan's chapter um, was about Ladakh an area that I'm much more familiar with and have worked for a long time and yet Sathar um, is this whole new sort of perspective and so each one of those I think was was really great for me to to experience, and I enjoyed.
1: There's one thing I wanted to touch on. I didn't want to interrupt you earlier when you were speaking, but I really do appreciate the um, the um, impetus or the emphasis on allowing these voices to speak for themselves, at least primarily. And while I do textual studies, um, uh, the stars have yet to align for me to do an ethnographic project, but it, it seems very important uh, to me, at least, to to really prioritize and hone in on, and become familiar with the primary text, and not read every single thing written in the secondary scholarship before approaching the text, and not even trying to interpret unless you spend some time living in that primary text. Because what is what uh, what what is your expertise? And your expertise is is, is trying to showcase that primary text that primary voice and then bring it into concert with the secondary scholarship or your own voice or have you. So that that impulse, it's um it's it's very resonant and I think it's very important. And I think ironically when we create that space and have that patience, we do even better analysis. Good. So uh I realize you're both um on a tight schedule for today. So um at this point I I suppose we'll close unless there's anything else you wanted to touch upon.
2: I just want to thank you for asking us to or giving us this opportunity to talk about the book some and uh, hosting us today. It's terrific. Thank you. You're welcome. Yes. Thank you
0: very much.
1: Thank you both for appearing. So for those of you who have, who are listening to this uh, out there in the timeless time of podcast land, um, you know, you speak into a black box and who knows, but I imagine based on the numbers of downloads that people do listen to this, Anyhow, for those of you listening, uh, we've been speaking about a brand new 2021 uh, book that's part of the Rutledge South Asian Religion Series. It's called Muslim Communities and Cultures of the Himalayas, uh, Conceptualizing the Global Ummah. And I've been speaking with uh, its two uh, editors, um, Jacqueline Fuchs and Megan Adamson Siljopati. Uh, until next time, stay safe, stay well, keep listening, uh, keep reading. And keep contemplating um, the meaning of community. Take care.